this is the first of five warning passages in Hebrews. And if you're familiar at all with the letter to the Hebrews, you know these five warning passages bring about a wide difference of opinion. People differ on what the interpretation of these passages is. They're all teaching the same truth. And yet, even biblical scholars of different theological camps or persuasions can't agree on what these passages are teaching. And these passages sometimes are quite troubling to the young believer in Christ. I think there's two main reasons why we have trouble with the warning passages. The first is what we forget when we read the warning passages. And secondly, what we wrongly have in our mind when we read the warning passages. When we approach these warning passages, we must keep in mind exactly what David told us last week when he gave a quick introduction to the letter to the Hebrews. He taught us that it was written to professing Jewish believers in Messiah Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had turned from Judaism. They had turned to Jesus Christ as God's promised Messiah. In fact, if you read through the entire letter, you will see that some of them even suffered persecution and the loss of their personal land and homes and property for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, for their faith in Jesus Christ, their professed faith. But now under renewed persecution, maybe even threat of life this time, some of them had turned away from Christ and went back to Judaism. Others were tempted to turn from Christ to try and alleviate the persecution and go back to Judaism. When we approach these warning passages, just like every part of Hebrews, we must keep that firmly in mind. These words are written to those who are tempted to turn from Christ and go back to an old way, to go back to Judaism. They're turning their back on Christ. They're renouncing Christ as the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, the only way of salvation. That's what they're renouncing. That's what they're turning away from. That's what they're regarding as unclean. We have to keep that firmly in mind. And that helps us to come to grips with the wording in these five warning passages. Now, the thing that sometimes we have in mind as we approach these warning passages is certain systems of man-made theology 
Some are correct. Some are wrong. But we approach these passages asking the wrong question. We approach these passages asking the question, can I lose my salvation? And we expect this passage to answer that question. Or if we're of a different theological persuasion, we approach this passage asking the question, does this passage teach that these people were never saved at all in the first place, that they merely professed faith in Messiah Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's not the right question to ask either. The question we need to ask of these warning passages is the one the author intended. It's simply a warning against turning from Jesus Christ to, specifically in the letter, turning back to Judaism. For you and I today, turning away from Jesus Christ to anything else, trusting in anything else for salvation, for fulfillment in life, for an abundant life, whatever, turning away from Jesus Christ to something else. That is what these passages are warning us against. With these thoughts in mind, let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The title of today's message, if you like titles, is Hold Fast to Christ's Message. Hold Fast to Christ's Message. In this passage, Jesus Christ is revealed as God's greatest messenger, whose message was testified to by God and whose message must be carefully listened to and obeyed. Listened to and held fast. Christ is revealed as God's greatest messenger. If you take only one thing away from this morning's message, let it be this. God wants you to be careful that you do not slip away from the truth of Christ's message. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you have known others who have drifted away from the truth of Christ's message. Maybe they're not even in fellowship with any local church at this time. Maybe they never open their Bible or pray any longer. Maybe they no longer confess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Perhaps you know someone who has already drifted away from the truth of Christ's message. Let their example as well be a warning to every one of us that any one of us can drift away from the truth of Christ's message. The writer addresses this warning and the rest of his letter to all of those Jewish believers, to all those who were recipients of his letter. 
As such, we are recipients of the letter of Hebrews as well. Let us take to heart the message that God has in this warning passage for every one of us. We want to hold fast to Christ's message, and we want to examine these four verses under three headings. The first, you can drift away from Christ's message. That's going to come up very clearly. Also, you can be punished for violating Christ's message. This will come right out of the exact words of the text as well. And lastly, you and I should have no doubts whatsoever about Christ's message, that it is true, that it is accurate, that it is what God wants us to know. So let's begin. Let's look at the fact that you can drift away from Christ's message. This is a warning that every one of us needs to take to heart. There's a reason that we must pay attention to Christ's message. In the very first words of chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For this reason, what reason? This reason, what he had just taught, what he had just written in the 14 verses of Hebrews chapter 1. This is the purpose for which he so exalted the Lord Jesus Christ in those 14 verses, showing not only was he greater than angels, but he was greater than everything because he was God manifest in the flesh, God incarnate in human flesh. For this reason, chapter 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And just as he includes himself in that exhortation, we are all included, myself included, in that same exhortation to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For that reason, Christ himself is the reason. In Hebrews chapter 1, Christ is revealed as God's final message to man. God, a long time ago, spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways in these Last days, he has spoken to us through his son. That's the way Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 opens. Christ is God's final message to man. There is no other message after the Lord Jesus Christ. His apostles proclaimed that same message that Jesus Christ proclaimed. They proclaimed Christ as Savior of the world, as Lord of all. He was revealed as the heir and creator of all things, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Christ is heir and creator. Christ is God's son, his exact image. And he himself is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. God's Son upholding all things, the radiance of God's glory. That glory struck the Apostle John to the ground as a dead man. 
He's greater than angels. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. He never said that to any of the angels. Christ himself is the reason we must pay much closer attention. He is God incarnate. A couple verses later, God the Father addresses God the Son as God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He is God incarnate. All that God the Father is, Christ is. There is no difference. He's to receive worship just like God. Christ is the reason. You and I don't need a better reason to pay much closer attention to the gospel message than Jesus Christ himself. That's actually a superior reason than focusing on our own salvation. What's in it for me? Looking at it selfishly, just from my own perspective. That won't keep us from drifting away. Christ and focusing on Christ, being so caught up with him, so enamored with him, so in love with him, so devoted to him, having so much gratitude and appreciation for him, being caught up with him, that he is your all in all in this life. That is what will keep you and I from drifting away. When we don't feel like it, when we're not in the mood, focusing on Christ changes all that because he never changes. Our desires will change but focusing on him is what will keep us from drifting away. He himself is the reason that we must pay much closer attention. That's the reason to pay close attention to Christ's message. What is our response to Jesus Christ himself? It's simply this, we must, it's not optional. Must is a four-letter word. We don't like, as Christians, we don't like four-letter words, right? But here's one that the Bible uses over and over again, that we must love. We must, it's not optional. There's no other way. This is the only way. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It wasn't enough to just pay attention when the gospel was shared with you and I. When we trusted in Jesus Christ, when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it's even more important now because now we are engaged in spiritual warfare and the enemy of man's souls would love to cause you and I to drift away from what we have heard. 
our responses, we must pay much closer attention. Not just close attention, but much closer. And when trials come in life, we need to pay even much, much closer attention to what we have heard. What is the result of not paying attention to Christ's message? So that, here's the reason, here's the result when you do not pay attention to Christ's message. When Christ's message, when the Word of God does not have a prominent place in your daily life, it's coming back to God's Word again. This is what He uses to transform us, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to strengthen our faith in the Lord. The reason, the result of not paying attention is so that we do not drift away from it. There it is, plain and simple. It's addressed to all those he was writing to. It's addressed to us today. It is possible to drift away from the message of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about something that could never happen. It's a reality. If that doesn't scare you this morning, if you're not already sitting there and the thought came to your mind or you prayed quickly, Lord, let it not be me. May I never drift away. I urge you to consider that. That that is a prayer worth praying. Oh God, you know how weak I am. You know how my heart manufactures idols daily sometimes. Oh Lord, help me not to drift away. There's a prayer the Lord would be pleased to answer if you were to pray that in sincerity. It is possible, and that should scare every one of us. If it doesn't scare you, well, maybe we need to have a little talk because it scares me that there is the possibility that I could drift away from the lover of my soul, the one who gave it all on the cross so that I could have salvation. We can drift away, but there's also punishment for violating Christ's message. It comes out very clear in verse 2 and 3. God's message, once given, cannot be changed. When God gives a message, he's not going to change it because of you or and I. We're not going to be able to convince him to change it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, it couldn't be altered, it couldn't be changed into something else, something that's more palatable, something that's tastier, something that we find sweeter. No, God's word, God's gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ can never be changed. Christ is the only way of salvation. In salve, Peter preached, and in none other 
is their salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven given amongst men wherein they must call on to be saved. Their salvation in no one else. Their salvation in nothing else. Oh, but Peter made that up, did he? No, he basically was teaching and preaching exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's what Jesus Christ said. Exclusivity of Christianity, exclusivity of salvation began with Jesus Christ. He said it first. He is the only way of salvation. That can never be altered. Look, if God provided 100 ways of salvation, let's be honest, we'd want 101. It would never be enough. If he provided 1,000 ways of salvation, we'd want 1,001. We'd find some reason that our way of salvation isn't included. So God didn't take our advice on the way of salvation. His message, his good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unalterable. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ and his finished work of salvation on the cross when he bore the sins of the world in his body, shed his precious blood, and died. He underwent the wrath and judgment of God so that you and I would never have to. He cried out those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to cry them out. God, that is God's message of salvation and it will never be changed. In the past, God has punished disobedience to his message. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, all you have to do is read your Old Testament and you'll see throughout the wilderness wanderings, for example, over and over again as Israel complained and rebelled against God, and they violated God's law. And they disobeyed him. There was a penalty involved again and again. The people that the author was writing to knew their Old Testament through and through. They knew it better than you and I know it. And they knew the truth of what he was saying. Today, you cannot disobey God's message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot reject it and expect not to experience consequences. The consequences for the rejection of God's message, disobedience to that message, is eternal condemnation the wrath and judgment of God for all eternity. Just as God punished justly, not unjustly, but rightly, every act of disobedience, so too, one day, Jesus Christ himself will judge 
everyone. And everyone who has rejected and disobeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, he will judge. They wanted their own will throughout their life. He will give them their own will throughout eternity. And their will was to have no part of God and Christ, and that will continue. He's just giving them, in his wrath and judgment, what they always wanted in life. That is the just penalty that they will receive. For an infinite transgression, for an infinite sin and offense against an infinitely holy God, they receive an eternal penalty. It's just. The penalty is infinite because the sin was infinite, because God is infinitely holy. Nothing unjust about that whatsoever. Let the examples of God's punishment of sin contained in Scripture be a warning to every one of us not to drift away from Christ's message because there is a just penalty for everyone who turns his back on the gospel of Jesus Christ and wants no part of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life. Christ's message alone is the only escape from divine judgment in verse 3, the writer asks a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is obvious. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The answer is we won't escape. Christ's message, the gospel that he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that he is the only way to the Father. That is the only escape. There is no other escape. There is no other way. There is no second way. Cast yourself upon God's mercy. Trust in the message of Jesus Christ for salvation. There is no escape from divine judgment other than through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Christ's message alone is so great salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's, it's not some rinky-dink salvation. It's not just for this life. It's for all eternity. It is the greatest salvation. Certainly someone can save your life, perhaps an emergency room physician, uh, perhaps uh, uh, just a good Samaritan pulls you from a burning car. They can save your life. That's, that's a great salvation, but this is so great a salvation. It's for all eternity. Christ died in the sinner's place so that the sinner could inherit not just life, but eternal life. Rejection of Christ's message is rejection of both Christ and God. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so, so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? It was the Lord's own message. It didn't originate with man. Man didn't make up this gospel message. Someone has written, the gospel is not a message that anyone would write if they could, nor could write if they would. What do they mean? You think about all the different systems, religious and philosophical systems. You think about all the moral systems that man has created and made. They all involve works righteousness. I must do good deeds in order to be accepted by God. I must do good if I am to be accepted by God, if I am to earn God's salvation, if I am to earn and merit God's blessing, if I am to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's all about what I do. That's the story man would write. But the gospel, the biblical gospel that's preached at Grace Gospel Church and other churches is not a story anyone would want to write. Why? I'm a spiritual pauper. You're spiritual paupers. We have absolutely nothing that we can offer to God to commend ourselves to God, to make us right with God. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing we can pray, nothing we can give. All we can do is trust in Jesus Christ. We can do nothing. That's the message the Lord spoke. And rejection of that message is a rejection of him and of his father. You can't reject Christ's message without rejecting the father as well. And lastly, you and I should have no doubts whatsoever about Christ's message. Why is that? Christ's message is his own message, as we saw. It's truth is as certain as he is the truth. It, the message, the gospel, was first spoken through the Lord. You don't believe the gospel, you're not believing the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel is false, if you believe the message of salvation found in Scripture is false, then you believe that Jesus Christ is false. If you believe the gospel is a lie, then you believe Jesus Christ is a lie. It is his message. He spoke it first. It was first spoken by the Lord. He spoke it. He lived it. He proved it when he went to the cross and then three days later rose from the dead. Exactly what he said he would do. If you can find any other religious leader who said he'd rise from the dead, and he did, by all means, follow that religious leader. Moses died and didn't rise again. Abraham died and didn't rise again. Muhammad died and didn't rise again. 
Buddha. No one but Jesus Christ said he would die and rise again and did. That is a true message. Let any man here say, I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to rise again. There's no way you can know that. Such a person is a liar. But not Jesus Christ because he actually did what he said he would do. He is the truth. His message is true. Christ's message was not just his own. It has eyewitness corroboration. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, by people who actually witnessed Jesus Christ in life. They lived with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They slept with him. They listened to his teaching. They observed closely every aspect of his life and could find no sin in him, no fault. And they confirmed that message. You know, in our courts, almost without exception, hearsay evidence is not allowed. Well, so-and-so told me, no, no, that's not allowed. We need to hear from so-and-so. They need to take the stand and tell us what they saw, what they heard. That's exactly what the apostles did. They were eyewitnesses to the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the glory that followed. They are taking the stand. And in the Gospels, there's four of them, four independent eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four of them telling us the truth of Christ's message. And they say the same thing. Oh, but Paul, their, their words differ a little bit, but they don't contradict each other. Oh, but their testimony has some differences and variations. Look, if four witnesses gave hours-long testimony in one of our courts, and it was word for word exact from all four of them, you know what you'd say? Collusion. They planned it ahead of time. They wrote it together. No, the fact that there's some variation but no contradictions shows you the truthfulness of the gospel accounts of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It has eyewitness corroboration, exactly what is needed in a court of law to decide if something is true. The Gospels offer that for you and I, for everyone. Christ himself, Christ's message was, to, was testified to by God himself. God also testifying with them. Imagine that after those four evangelists give their testimony into the courtroom of truth, God arrives. No other, no other witness less than God himself. He testifies. God also testifying with them. Not against them, but with them. God testified in unmistakable ways. God also testifying with them 
by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These things that were done through the apostles, first beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then through the apostles, beginning on the day of Pentecost, these were signs. They weren't simply powerful, supernatural events. That wasn't what they were. They were first and foremost signs. What do signs do? They point us to something. Signs point us this way to I-195, to Interstate 195. That's what a sign does. It tells us where to head, what direction to go in, how far we are from something. They point to something. And that's what these powerful supernatural events that we read about, both in the Gospels that Christ did, as well as in the book of Acts. It's to point us to Jesus Christ. It's not to exalt any man. It's not to make any ministry, to create a ministry. It's to point to Jesus Christ. That's it. They are signs pointing to Jesus Christ. And if they don't point to Jesus Christ, they are not biblical signs at all. They're wondrous. We marvel at them. They're miraculous in a sense. And he often did it through spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gave according to his will, not according to the will of any man. The Holy Spirit decides. These are all recorded for us in God's word. Oh, Paul, if only God would do a sign for me today, then I would believe. Jesus Christ told a story in which he had to tell a man. In the story, the man is told, look, even if Lazarus comes back from the dead, your brothers won't believe. They have the word of God. That's enough. And that's true today. We already have a man who's come back from the dead, don't we? Jesus Christ. And yet they still won't believe. Oh, I I had an atheist tell me once. This person had professed salvation, drifted away, turned his back and regarded as unclean the blood of Jesus Christ. And sitting across the table, he said to me, if God would give me a sign, I would believe. And I said, like, what kind of sign? Someone coming back from the dead? And he knew where I was going. He said, no, no, no. If this table would start to levitate, if my kitchen table started to levitate, I would believe. And I said, really? Wouldn't your first thought be, Paul, how are you doing this? This is some kind of trick. And then even when you were assured it wasn't a trick, that I wasn't doing it, how do you know it's from God? How do you know it's not from Buddha? How do you know it's not from a demon? How do you know this is from God? You don't know that. Yet we have the word of God 
that passes all the tests of historical evidence. It contains everything for us to verify its truthfulness exactly as would be done in a court of law. Beyond any reasonable doubt whatsoever, God made sure of it. His word is what we need, not a kitchen table levitating in some strange way. In conclusion, God revealed Christ as his final message to man. Christ in these verses is revealed as God's greatest messenger. God wants you to be careful that you do not slip away from the truth of Christ's message. Hold on to that. Grasp it close. Pull it to your chest. Never let it go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness to us. How we thank you for your beloved son. How we thank you for the message that he began to proclaim. How we thank you for the truthfulness of that message. And oh dear God, would you be pleased for your glory to never let us slip away, never let us drift from the truth of that message. Oh, dear God, if you hold us close, we will never drift away. We know that it all comes down to you and our desire to be with our Lord. You are the one who gives us the strength, and we thank you for it. We know that you are the one who will win the victory. And dear God, when our days are done, if we are close and have never drifted away, we give you all the thanks and praise for it is your doing and not ours. We thank you so much for your son and his message. By your Holy Spirit, help us to hold it fast, not merely for our blessing and benefit, but for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.